Our New Testament reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he was dismissing the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way off from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew by looking at this wonderful and well-known passage. But before we turn to the text, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word declares, promises, proclaims your gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that the teaching that follows would apply the truths of the person and work of Christ to our heads, to our hands, to our hearts. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the, the 20th century, sorry, the 20th century writer, novelist, and memoirist Anais Nin, she gives us the following philosophy of life. She writes, there is not one big cosmic meaning for all. There's only the meaning that we each give to our life, an individual meaning, an individual plot, like an individual novel, a book for each person. But let's think about this though. If you think you have the same control over your life, that an author of a novel has over the characters in the story, you are sorely mistaken. You are not the author of your life. You have far, far less control over your circumstances than does an author over their story. Things will happen in your life that you wish never did. There are countless ways that your life will veer from the plan that you have 
for it. Saying that you are the author of your life is like blowing into the sail of a boat on a windy day and believing that you alone are responsible for the boat's motion. Yes, we as humans, we are responsible for everything that we do. We have real agency, and what we do matters greatly. It matters eternally. But we are only characters in a much bigger story, the story that God is writing, not us. When it comes to life, we are Hamlet, not Shakespeare. And it's with this truth in mind that we properly approach today's passage. Jesus has sent the disciples by themselves out to the sea as he goes up on the mountain to pray. Night comes and the boat bearing the disciples has been pushed far away from the land. Matthew tells us that the boat has been beaten by the waves and by the wind. And then in the fourth watch of the night, which is somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., the disciples finally see Jesus coming to them, and he's walking upon the water. And what this account so far brings to the forefront is the vulnerability of the disciples to realities outside of their control. They don't mean to be so far away from the shore, but they're at the mercy of the water. The ESV, the translation we're using, it tells us that the boat is beaten by the waves. But the Greek word here can also be translated to torture, to severely distress, to torment, to harass. In fact, Matthew uses this same verb in chapter 8 when a demon asks Christ if Christ has come to torment him before the appointed time. The waves are tormenting and harassing and even torturing the boat. And yet, this reality, it doesn't surprise the disciples. They know what to expect from the wind and waves. They recognize that they are vulnerable to what often seems a hostile world. However, with the advent of modern technology, we often can forget this. We can think that we have more control over life than we actually do. And of course, the, the COVID pandemic has reminded us that despite all of our technological advancements, we have no invincibility against the things that threaten human life. And of course, just to name a few other examples, weather conditions, drought, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, sicknesses, illness, famine, traffic accidents, inflation, and of course the inevitable specter of death, all of these bring our vulnerability and our fragility to our attention with force. Even more, we like the boat of the disciples, we can't help but drift off course from where we plan to be, what we expect our life to look like. The winds and waves of unexpected circumstances push us into places we never meant to be. Perhaps 10 years ago, we thought we would be in a very different place than where we are right now. We may feel tormented, harassed, even tortured by the winds and waves of life that beat against us. Perhaps you feel that it is these unruly winds and waves that have forced you here. Perhaps your job or parenthood or your health or your friendships or something else has pushed you into waters that you never meant 
to sale. For instance, professor of theology Natalie Carnes in her book, Motherhood, a Confession, she tells the following story about a mother and her love for a baby who simply refuses to sleep during the night. Carnes writes, the mother is left largely on her own with her baby. A baby who cries through long days and short nights until the mother is nearly crazed with sleep deprivation. One night as she wakes, stupefied to more screams and tears from her infant, she stumbles into the child's room and tries to comfort her baby. Holding the baby in her arms, she imagines herself throwing it through the window, the glass shattering around her. The vision is so real, she believes for a moment that she has done it. Horrified, terrified, she takes the baby out and rides public transportation all night, keeping herself and her baby in view of others. She and the baby survive the night. These are not the waters that we thought parenthood, for instance, would bring us into. How is it that this child that we love, this child that we have long prayed for, how is it that this child has become a source of torture and torment and harassment? And yet there's no parent in this room who can't relate to this story, however shocking it might seem. Parenthood cannot help but push us into very deep waters. And these waters, even and especially with adult children, can often feel much more like a violent sea than the calm waters of picture postcards. It's moments like these, many things that happen in our life, that we realize how much we have been fooled into expecting life to look like the movies, the happily, happily ever after stories that make us believe that something other than the return of Christ could ever bring full resolution, full peace, full contentment to our lives. But no, your children will cry and cry. You will feel overworked and underslept. The winds and waves of life will often push you far from where you expected to be, far from where you planned to be. The disciples know that they are creatures. They know that they are vulnerable to a million things outside of their control. The disciples know that they are not the authors of their own story. Only a modern person who thinks that they can control and manipulate and force all of the many variables of their life, only such a person would cast themselves as the author of their own story. But this does not make the disciples fatalists. They are vigilant and wakeful and watchful. In the Old Testament imagination, the sea and the water and the waves is the very image of chaos, of disorder, of violent harassment and indifference to human life. And so against this great chaos, the disciples watch and they wait. And what is it that they are watching and waiting for? For Christ. And eventually, Likely long after they hoped that he would arrive, finally the disciples see him. He comes to them, striding across the great chaos of the sea as if it were a well-tended garden path. Not knowing what's happening, however, the disciples cry out in fear. Yes, they are fearful of the wind and the water, but they expected that. But here... Here is another kind of fear. 
This is terror. This cannot be explained by their current conception of the world. And so Christ offers the only explanation that can make sense of the situation. The ESV, it gives us the following translation. Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. However, the middle phrase here in the Greek is simply I am. I am. Take heart, don't be afraid. I am. And while this doesn't translate well in English, we must understand this as the divine name. It is the name Yahweh. It is I am. It is being itself. It is the covenant name of the Lord revealed to Moses in the burning bush. Take heart. I am the great I am. I am Yahweh. I am the God of the universe who created the sea and holds together its every drop. And so, yes, I can stride across the water. My word created the water, and so my word commands it. We, we're not even the authors of our own life, but here we find the author of the very universe itself, of everything. And yet we see that he has taken our humanity. To borrow an illustration from C.S. Lewis, here is Shakespeare become Hamlet. Here is the one who is both God and human. In his divinity, he controls the wind and the waves. And in his humanity, his legs stride across the water in royal procession. Few people have captured this dynamic better than the reformer, John Calvin. He writes, here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth and to hang upon the cross. Yet, he continuously filled the world even as he had done from the beginning. Christ is God the Son become human. In his humanity, he walks upon the very waves that his divinity sustain each and every moment. Only this, only this can make sense of what the disciples see. And so to fast forward to the end of the account, we read, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And why did the disciples see this sight that commands the worship of Christ? Because they were wakeful, because they were watchful, because they were vigilant. The wind and the waves made them look longingly for Christ. And so when Christ came, they were ready. They saw him. And so again, we ask, what are the winds and waves of life that are harassing and beating and torturing and tormenting us? Are they making us vigilant, wakeful, watchful? Are you always looking for Christ to intervene, even if you've been waiting all night and it's the existential equivalent at 4 a.m. in the morning? Are you praying that Christ will come and act? Do the storms of this life make you watchful for the work of Christ? If not, we may miss him. 
If not, we may fail to see him striding across those most chaotic parts of our life. If not, then we may never come to the full conviction of the disciples. We may never bow down before him and say, truly, you are the Son of God. If we don't look for the work of Christ in our lives and in the world, we may never actually see it. We may never truly come to know and to taste and to see that Christ is Lord. And the fact that the disciples identify Christ as the Son of God, that's very important. Because we've seen this phrasing before in Matthew, but from the mouth of Satan. Recall that in, sorry, in Satan's temptation of Christ, Satan first says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Christ responds by way of Scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan then says to Christ, after taking him to the very top of the temple in Jerusalem, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Christ responds again by way of Scripture. Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And what does Christ mean here by this quotation from Deuteronomy? The Greek word here translated as to put to the test means to subject, to subject, to test, or proof. It means, hey, prove it. Satan has laid down his own standards for who God is and how he should be, quite literally devilish standards, and he pushes these upon Christ. This is how the Son of God should act, Satan says. And so prove that you are the Son of God by doing just these things. Turn this bread into stone. Jump down from the temple and have not even your foot scrape against a rock. And this makes sense if we are the authors of our own story. God becomes only one more supporting character to help us as the main character, as the protagonist, as the hero, to accomplish all that we think we should and must accomplish. Prove that you are God by turning this stone into bread. Prove that you are the Son of God by turning this resume into a job. Prove that you are the Son of God by healing this sickness that's disrupting all of my goals and ambitions. Prove that you are the Son of God by bringing me romance. Prove that you are the Son of God by making my children exactly what I expect them to be. Prove that you are the Son of God by making my bank account overflow. Prove that you are the Son of God by letting me be both the author of my own life and the author of who you are. God, yes, you made me and you authored me, but now let me return the favor by making and authoring you. Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist are well known for their book Soul Searching and their coining of what has come to be the default religion for much of American culture, moralistic therapeutic deism. And they write the following about this quite common faith. God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. 
He is always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. We want a God whose main concern is fixing all of our personal and professional problems as we define them, making us feel good about ourselves all the time and then backing off again until something else goes wrong. We want a God who will turn any and all stones into bread at our command. God, prove that you are real by making my life work out exactly like I think that it should. God, meet all my needs exactly as I define them. God, let me be God. Believe me, I could do a much better job than you. But here's the surprising thing. In chapter 14, we see Christ do the very things that Satan urged him to do. Last week, we looked at how Christ fed a great crowd of thousands by multiplying a few loaves and a few fishes. Christ has done more here than turn stones into bread. And this week, we see Christ's foot striking something just as dangerous as the rocks below the temple. His feet may not be walking on air, but they are walking upon the water of the raging sea, something just as miraculous. Recall, too, Satan's third temptation. Satan shows Christ all the kingdoms of the world and says that he will give the whole of them to Christ if Christ will simply lay down and worship him. But, of course, there's a deep irony there. If Christ is the Son of God, then he should be the one receiving worship. And so Christ is adamant and indignant. Only God shall be worshipped. The only proper response to Christ, then, if Christ is the Son of God, is exactly what the disciples do to Christ when he, turns, when he returns to the boat. All those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. If Christ is the Son of God, this and this alone is the only proper response. We should not tell God what, what he must do in order to prove that he is God. That would be worshiping ourselves. No, if Christ is God, then what we must do is fall down before him in worship. And do we do this simply because God is powerful? Do we do this simply because God is strong enough to control the wind and the waves and we are not? No, because God is not merely or only powerful. God is not a bare brute of strength that works his will in the universe regardless of what is best for anyone or anything. Yes, God is powerful, infinitely so, but he is not merely powerful. In fact, and, and here we're referring to what is called the doctrine of, of divine simplicity, God's power is the same as his wisdom and his goodness and his graciousness, and his mercy, and his love, and his holiness, and his justice, and all of his other wonderful attributes. All of these just are God. God is power. God is holiness. God is love. God is wisdom, which means that any of these beautiful attributes taken to their infinite degree just is God. 
Infinite power just is infinite goodness, which just is God. And please note the elegance here. It is a wonderful thought that infinite power is infinite goodness and is infinite love. It's a wonderful thought that there is no such thing as infinite power without infinite goodness and infinite love. It's a wonderful thought that this beautiful oneness and simplicity is at the core of reality because of this beautiful simplicity is God. It's a wonderful thought that there is no true power without true love and goodness and wisdom, which relates to everything we said about true authority in last week's sermon. And so we must never think of God as mere power. Yes, he is powerful, infinitely so. But his power is wise and good and holy and just and merciful and loving. And so when we fall down in worship before God, as did the disciples, we don't come to him as a defeated enemy who grudgingly bows before another ruler who has simply broken our backs because of his infinitely greater power. We are often broken when we come to God. But the God we come to just is the perfect and full and infinite and complete expression of goodness and wisdom and love and truth and, yes, power. And if God's great power is his goodness and love, that means that we as his people can trust him. We are not his conquered enemies. We are his beloved children. And what might feel like simple torture and torment in our lives is actually his loving discipline. His orchestrating the whole of our life to form us into what he intends us to be. Paul is very clear about this in Romans 8, that absolutely all things that God brings into our life is meant to conform us into the image of Christ. Everything, everything. And this is true because God's power is his goodness. Only if God is infinitely powerful could he actually work all things for our good. But only if God is infinitely good would he do this. Would he work all things for our good. So yes, in a sense, Christ can always turn stones into bread. Christ can always walk upon the air and the water. Christ can always give us exactly what we want. Christ is infinitely powerful, but he's also infinitely good, which means he will not always do this because he knows what is best for us. A key aspect of the Christian life is this very difficult, very hard realization. What you most think you want for your life is actually not best for you. What you are most striving to achieve, romance or professional success or notoriety or financial resources or even family harmony, none of these things is what you most need. The whole logic of sin is loving these true and lesser goods as the greatest good. And of course, the greatest good is God alone. And so chances are what you envision for the shape of your life is not best for you. If Christ in his mercy gives us these good gifts, let us receive them gladly and gratefully. But we have to remember that these are not our greatest good and that we're never actually promised any of these goods in this life. 
And I say this with trepidation. I say this because Scripture compels me to say this. We are not promised the life that we want, but we are promised the life that we need, the life that God intends to use to conform us into the image of Christ, the life that is truly good for us. And fortunately enough, this life that we are promised is the life that we ourselves would want if we had God's wisdom. Christ will do great things. Christ will do great things. He will feed thousands with only a few loaves. He will walk upon the water. He will calm the storm. He will call his children to faith. He will bring about revivals all over the world. He will grow his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. He will return one day and set absolutely all things right, bringing his kingdom of perfect flourishing into its full entirety. But he will do this as and when he sees fit in his perfect goodness. We should always ask for these things. We should always pray for these things. We should always long for these things. We should always watch and strive for these things. But we must know that Christ will not turn stones into bread at our command. We must know that often we will have to wait until the very last watch of the night to see Christ work. And often when Christ brings this about, it will be in ways that shake us, scare us, test our faith, ways that don't fit the story that we would like to author for ourselves. There's a well-known and wise scene in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, where, where the child Lucy and Mr. Beaver discuss the lion Aslan, who is the Christ figure in the stories. Lucy asks, isn't Aslan quite safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Aslan is not safe in any conventional sense, and by implication, neither is Christ. Christ will bring us places we may not wish to go, but this is for our good, always for our good, unshakably for our good. Eventually, all of us, all of us, will face very hard things, sickness, loss, death. What are the hard things you are facing right now? Illness? unemployment, rejection, professional failures, unfulfilled hopes and longings, parental struggles with your children. I say this with trepidation, but in what ways do these hardships have the potential to form you in ways that nothing else could? How can these situations cause you to know and trust God in a way that no other circumstance could offer? This is not an easy question, and it offers no easy answers. But if our God is really good and is really powerful, then this is the question we have to keep asking and asking and asking. And so at Peter's, at Peter's own request, because of his faith in Christ, Christ bids Peter to come to him upon the waves and the wind. What is Christ bidding you to do? What are the waves and wind that Christ is calling you to walk through to get to him? 
Is he calling you to come to him amidst the wind and the waves of discomfort as you leave the comfort of your home and meet and serve your neighbors and community? Is he calling you to come to him amidst the winds and waves of others' opinions as you hold firm to your Christian convictions and contexts where they will bring forth hostility? Is he calling you to walk to him amidst the winds and waves of professional pushback? Maybe as you refuse to sacrifice family and church and friendships to a never-ending work schedule. Is he calling you to walk to him amidst the winds and waves of sickness and health struggles, believing that even here he is guiding our steps according to his purpose? And here, just like Peter, our faith might struggle. But Christ is there to catch Peter. We too will stumble and fall. We too will have times when the wind and the waves seem so much bigger than Christ. We too will fool ourselves into thinking that cultural hostility or sickness or professional pressures or broken relationships or unfulfilled hopes and ambitions are so much bigger than Christ. But even here, Christ reaches out and he catches us. He grabs us. He keeps us secure. Christ has called us into a life that is not safe, but one that is good, and Christ in his goodness will never let you go. While Peter touches the human hand of Christ only after he begins to fall, Peter was always in the divine hands of Christ, in the loving hands of God himself. And so in the end, we are really only left with two options. We're either absolutely secure in the hands of God, or we're absolutely vulnerable in our own hands. But again, things will not always look like this to us. Think about that mother who felt compelled to take her infant on public transportation in order to keep herself accountable. She likely received scowls and sneers from her fellow passengers. What a horrible mother. What kind of mother would take her baby out to a place like this at a time like this? And yet, this mother was doing this because of her love for her child. And Christ also confounds us. There's another time that we find the title Son of God in Matthew. In Matthew 27, as Christ hangs on the cross, we are told that those who passed by wagged their head mockingly and said, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And so we have to ask, why would the son of God hang on the cross? Well, first of all, this reminds us that things are not often what they seem. To Christ's followers, this appeared utter tragedy. When Christ was crucified, it seemed that all was lost. But the cross was the great victory of Christ. This was not the moment when all was lost, but the very moment when all was gained. And toward that end, it's only when we look at the cross that we can make sense of what happens after the account of Jesus walking on the water. Remember, today's passage ends with Christ coming to Gennesaret after joining the disciples on the boat, and everyone that's brought to him is made well even those who merely touch the hem of his garment. And we, reading this, perhaps we think, is this just a tease? They were all healed. 
They all got exactly what they want. They had the winds and the waves of their lives immediately stopped by Christ. But what about us? What about our sickness? What about all the things that keep us up with worry and fear and anxiety? However, please realize all these people who were healed were healed to suffer sickness and illness and death again. Consider even the story of Lazarus in John 11. Strictly speaking, Lazarus is not resurrected. He was resuscitated. He was raised to die again. And one day, Mary and Martha will have to mourn his death all over again. These healings are good and powerful displays of Christ's mercy, but they are temporary. And that's why we need the cross. Don't be fooled by appearances. Because Christ is the Son of God, for that very reason, he stayed upon the cross. Because he is the Son of God, he suffered the punishment of death on our behalf. God the Son became human and took pain and suffering and death and divine wrath upon himself. But Christ did not stay dead. Christ was resurrected, not resuscitated. Christ was raised never to die again. He is the Son of God, the one who made humanity, the one who holds the power over death, the one who is himself life and being, the one who is I am. So yes, because he is the Son of God, he will stay upon the cross. But because he is the Son of God, he will not, he cannot stay in the tomb. In Christ's resurrection, his human life free of sin and death and corruption and pain and suffering, this is our sure and certain promise. Christ's present is our future. This is our hope. This is the certain destination that all the winds and the waves of life are ultimately pushing us to. If you have placed your faith in Christ, then one day, not long from now, I promise you, this is the wonderful shore and the beautiful country that the boat of your life will dock upon. In the trials of this life, we will often ask Christ, why have you not healed me and my sufferings in just the way that you did for all of these people on the shores of Gennesaret? And yet we must hear Christ say to us, don't you realize, my child, that I already have. You may not receive the temporary healing that you seek, one that will still end in death. But do you not know that one day you will be raised with me never to die again? I don't mean to be insensitive or to take lightly the tragedies that we bear, but I've heard it said that whatever it is that pains us, it's nothing that a good resurrection won't fix. This is the promise of Christ, even and especially amidst the winds and the waves of life in a fallen world. Let us pray. God, our Father, thank you for sending Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the promise he gives us. Thank you, Lord, that through all things you will conform us to his image. And thank you, Lord, that his present is our future that one day we will be free of sin and death and corruption 
enjoying perfect fellowship and communion with you and neighbor. Make that hope ever more certain in our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.